Sharrett. I am the interim pastor here at Wallace. My pleasure to bring you the Word of God this morning. We're studying the first epistle of Peter. So our text is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Peter writes, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. My first year of college, I was pretty miserable. Everything in high school that I had based my personhood, my worth upon, relative success academically, socially, and athletically, all but disappeared in a matter of months. I was a pretty unhappy and hurting camper. Turns out, I now know that was a severe mercy of God. Because I was trying to find my worth and my identity in something that could never give me ultimate value. And that is the love of God. I didn't know how much God loved me. And so like many people, we're all, I was scrambling for an identity. Looking for something to give stability, permanence, worth, fortitude. Only Jesus Christ, I now know, and most of you know, can give you an identity that doesn't change with your performance, with your feelings, with your income. Only Jesus can give you an identity that doesn't fluctuate with how much you know, how popular you are, your state of mind, your physical well-being. Only Jesus can give you an identity that doesn't depend on how victoriously you wrestle with sin that day. Only Jesus gives us an identity where we don't feel forced to reinvent ourselves with the most recent cultural fad dictating us what we should be like. Peter is giving his readers an identity grounded in the love of God. They needed that, and you and I need that, to find the love of God our ultimate refuge and comfort in trial, and that on which we build a life as the source of our comfort, our encouragement, our joy, our purpose, our hope, and our strength. Peter is saying, he's echoing the heart of God, that God wants you to wake up every morning with the loudest voice in your soul, that he loves you, he loves you, he loves you. There's nothing more important to God in this whole world than you. You're his precious treasure. That's the fact on which this text bids you to build your identity. So this is about the love of God. And let's ask this question. What does Peter tell us about the love of God? He tells us, first of all, 
that it's a merciful love. And spoiler alert, this is by far the longest point in the sermon, even though the outline may not look that way. What is the love of God? What sort of love is it? First of all, it is a merciful love. And Peter shows us four ways that mercy moves in our lives. God's merciful love first rescues us from unbelief. Notice the text begins with the words, but you. Peter is referring back to the immediately prior verses where he has been describing the unbelief of the Jews who rejected Jesus. They discarded the very cornerstone God was laying as the foundation of his people. They stumbled over Jesus, refusing to receive him as their Messiah and their Savior. But the Gentiles in the churches to which Peter are writing were sovereignly given by God the grace to embrace Jesus. You're different, but you, unlike these unbelievers, you have come to know Christ. (laughs) This is nothing short of the Spirit of God creating in them the ability to believe in Jesus. The Spirit of God taking out a heart of unbelief and replacing it with a heart that longs for Jesus. We saw this at the beginning of the epistle. Chapter 1, verse 3. According to His great mercy. There it is. According to God's great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Why do these believers, why do you and me have new life in Jesus? God caused it. He brought about a regeneration in our hearts whereby we were given the gift of faith and we willingly and delightedly embraced Jesus. This is the supernatural work of God's sovereign choice, replacing our dark hearts full of unbelief, full of refusal for God, with a heart that wants to know and embrace and live and trust Jesus Christ. Now, how do you know this has happened to you? Verse 9, he's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's kind of a test to know that you have this new heart. You know that you're in the light and no longer in darkness. Peter may be referencing here Isaiah 42, verse 16, where we read, And I will lead the blind in the way that they do not know, and paths they have not known. I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. What is darkness according to the Bible? It's very much like what you would experience in physical darkness. You really don't see things clearly. You really don't know what's most real, and therefore you don't really know what you need You have no appetite for God. You have no appetite for the Word of God. And what you desire is self-rule, self-assertion, and to be self-made, to be your own interpreter of reality. You're kind of all alone, as it were. That's darkness. But to have a new heart, to receive the mercy of God's salvation, is to be in the light. In the light, you see who God is. (laughs) You see who He made you to be. And you see, therefore, your great need of his salvation. You see that the light of the world, Jesus Christ, is your only hope. He's your Savior. He's your life. He's the friend of sinners. He's the one whom to know is to be assured of being with God forever in heaven. 
So you might put it this way. One way to know God has delivered you from darkness into light is that there's a new set of questions in your heart. And it would go like this. Lord, since you've loved me this way, giving your son to die for me, why don't I love you more? It's a new question you ask when you're in the light. Lord, since you have expressed your desire for me, you've caused me to be born again, you've given me life, you've expressed your desire for me to be your precious possession, why don't I desire you more? That's a test that you're in the light. You're aware that in your heart there's a principle of sin and rebellion and strong desire for self over God. When you're in the light, you say, Lord, you have provided richly for me. Why don't I thank you more? Lord, you've revealed yourself to me. Why don't I praise you more? Lord, you care for me. Why don't I want to serve you more? Lord, you sacrifice at great cost to yourself, giving your son Jesus Christ to die in my place on the cross. Why don't I sacrifice more for you? Lord, you've sought me out and found me. Why don't I seek you more? When you're in the light, Don't be surprised if these are the kinds of questions that pop up in your heart. But we are ultimately resting that none of these failures separates us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is showing us the ways. He's showing us how much we need Him. He's showing us what He has saved us from, that we can rest in His love. He'll never take that love away from us. He's never demanding this kind of perfection because he's given it for us in his son Jesus. So it's a merciful love, a merciful love that rescues us from unbelief. It's also a merciful love that releases us from judgment. Peter says in verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you'd not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Ironically, that's sort of always true of the Gentiles, but he's quoting from Hosea chapter 1. And Hosea, God is saying to Israel, obstinate, rebellious Israel, though you have rejected me and you've been in judgment for your sin against me, I am reclaiming you as my people. God is promising to extend mercy to his rebellious people, Israel. Hosea 1.10, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you're not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. Peter is using these verses to show his Gentile readers that they too are to be included in the people of God. More on that in a second. But the point I want to make now is, anyone in the world who asks God for mercy will be sure to receive it. So what is mercy? Mercy is always understood in light of justice. It's technically a justice concept. Justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. If you get what you deserve or earn, we call that wages. When your paycheck comes in, you don't hold it up and say, thank you for this mercy. It's justice. You traded your time and expertise for the company's payment of that. God owes no one mercy. God owes everyone justice, judgment for their sin. So the concepts of justice and mercy take us mysteriously 
and in an awesome way into the very heart of God. Somehow both are held in an amazing tension in the heart of God. On the one hand, God is perfectly just and righteous. He's the kind of judge you want in a courtroom when you have been wrongly accused. You want a judge who sees through the baloney, who knows the law, who understands exactly which end is up and will vindicate you. You want that is the kind of judge that God is. Abraham knew this, Genesis 18:25, shall not the judge of all the earth do right. And in his justice God told Moses, when he revealed himself to Moses at Mount Sinai in Exodus 34, he will by no means clear the guilty. God's just. We would be, we would be in horror if someone was guilty of heinous crimes and a judge said, you can go free. We would be screaming for justice. Where is justice? God will never do that. He's always just. On the other hand, God's heart burns in compassion and mercy toward his frail creatures. And he condescends to show his kindness to the undeserving. He's jealous to display that not only is he a just God, he is equally a merciful God. So how do you understand yourself in light of that? Well, when you're walking in the light you'd never ask God for justice because you'd be aware that you'd be asking him to punish your sins. When you're walking in the light, you're asking God for mercy. Don't hold my sins against me. Don't give me what I deserve. Give me mercy. What kind of people do you become when you beg God for mercy and you receive it through Jesus Christ? What kind of people do you become? Well, you realize what your life would be like without God's merciful intervention. How good a person do you really think you'd be without God's kindness and mercy and restraining hand in your life? Does your experience of God's mercy show up in your generosity? Does it show up in the way you treat the disadvantaged? How do your prayers to God reveal you live alone by mercy? That you're a Psalm 130, verse 2 kind of person. If thou, Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? I only stand by grace in Jesus. How does that inform your prayers? How does your experience of God's mercy frame the way you treat those who've sinned against you? I love the way the writer of Hebrews puts it when he describes the priest in the Old Testament. Hebrews 5.2 The priest can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. How do you deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward? The priest can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. If the word of God has exposed your heart to you and you can say with the priest of the Old Testament, my heart is beset with weakness, but I live by mercy, it sure radically changes the way you treat other people. Next, we're looking at God's love. God wants your entire identity based in the love of God the source, the foundation of all your comfort, all your joy, all your personhood, all your significance, all the meaning in your life is how much God loves you. This merciful love, C, 
ransoms from guilt. This isn't precisely in the two verses we read at the beginning of the sermon, but we do see it in chapter 1, verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ like that as a lamb without blemish or spot. We looked at that verse a number of weeks ago when we were in chapter 1. I want to call this to your attention though because people tend to minimize the gravity, the weightiness, and the glory of the love of God. We kind of think God loves everybody and it's this ethereal concept that we try to hang our identity on. And that would be a grave mistake. Because mercy always comes at a price. It comes at a price. I was talking to a young man a number of years ago who I was told had converted from Christianity to Islam. I said, that's very interesting. Can you tell me about that? So you were raised in the church as a Christian? Yes. You converted to Islam? Yes. What did you find you had to give up in your Christianity in order to become a Muslim? He said, nothing. I said, nothing. I said, I said, well, how are you absolutely certain that your sins are forgiven? He said, well, God is gracious. And I said, at what price? And he said, what do you mean, a pound of flesh for a pound of flesh? Actually, that's exactly what the Bible teaches. It was the flesh of Jesus, sacrificed on his cross, that was the cost of God giving us mercy. Romans 5, 6, and 8. God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That was the price to ransom sinners, the death of Jesus. While we were still helpless, Christ died for the ungodly. Perhaps this doesn't get any clearer than 1 John 4, 8. This is love. Not that God has these ushy-gushy feelings for everybody. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. On the cross, Jesus removed our sins and the judgment of God's wrath for those sins. There was a cost to pay. The 20th century uh, theologian Richard Niebuhr described the theological liberalism of his day, which had essentially done away with the cross, This way, he said, a God without wrath brought human beings without sin into a kingdom without judgment through through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Every one of those things is tragically lamentable, lamentable and unbiblical. So I just want to ask you, how do you know God loves you? Some of you struggle to believe he loves you you're much more acutely aware of your sin than the love of God for you. You live with a a sense of condemnation. You live with a great sense of guilt. You live with a great sense of inadequacy. You you live wondering, well, today is God going to pick me on to be on his team because I'm really not that good. How do you know God loves you? You have to base that on his promise, not your performance. He promises to love you. He makes promises through His Son. His Son is the reason He loves you. I love Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare His own Son as an act of justice, God should have said, no way is my Son dying for His enemies 
That wouldn't be right. A holy, perfect man being treated as if he'd committed the sins of his people, that's not just. No, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? God loves you because of what Jesus did and he promises. So when you're feeling awful about your performance, come back in repentance to the promises Look to Christ for every one look you take at your sin. Take ten looks at Jesus. We're looking at the nature of God's love. It is a merciful love. The next thing to see about that merciful love is it renames us by God's kind favor. Peter writes to his audience, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. There are two really important biblical themes in these verses. I want to point them out to you. The first is, notice that God is calling the New Testament church the same things he called his Old Testament people Israel. They have the same nomenclature. That means that on the earth, God has always had one people and only one people. I mention that because there's a popular teaching in American Christianity that started fairly early in the 20th century. It's called dispensationalism, and one of the interpretive points of dispensationalism is that God has two peoples, Israel and the church, and two plans for those peoples, and sort of never the twain shall meet till we all get to glory. That does not seem to comport with the biblical evidence because here is the church in the New Testament being called the exact same thing God's people are called in the Old Testament. And then related to that, the second theme to see is Gentiles are in fact going to be included in the people of God. Think about how the original audience of this epistle is receiving this verse. They're largely Gentiles. And the gospel comes to their cities. Uh, they knew there was a synagogue there. They knew where the, there were people there called Jews who believed in Yahweh. Well, they get converted. And after you get converted, what do you begin to do invariably? You study your Bible. The only Bible they have is the Old Testament at this point. So they begin to read the Old Testament. And you've done this. You start reading uh, the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses, and you get this overwhelming sense of how precious... Israel is to God. There's no more nation on the face of the earth as privileged. There's no other nation God is ultimately concerned with. Israel stands as this unbelievably unique, special relation to God. Only with Israel is God making his covenant. Only with Israel is God revealing his salvation. No one on the earth is as special in all of the world as Israel is. And so you Gentiles begin to wonder as you're reading that, could we be considered that special? What is our relationship to this, this chosen people, this special race, these people that God is making his covenant with? Could the God of the Hebrews really love Gentiles? And the answer is yes. It was always God's plan to do that. In fact, the promise made to the father of the Jews, Abraham, was, in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Ultimately finds its fulfillment in Jesus. You may have noticed that Jamie prayed early in the service that every tribe and tongue now is a part of the body of Christ. So not only do the prophets make this clear that the Gentiles are going to be included, it's there. Notice how Jesus frames his own ministry according to his calling of the, as the servant of the Lord based on Isaiah 42. 
Matthew 12, 21, we read, Jesus, aware of this, what he's aware of is that the Pharisees are plotting to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Many followed him. He healed them all and ordered them not to make him known because they wouldn't have done a good job making known his Messiahship without further revelation. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Isaiah foreseeing ahead of time that Jesus, the servant of the Lord par excellence, would in his ministry proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Paul got this. He writes this in Ephesians 3 verse 4. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul's not denying that the prophets weren't clear that the Gentiles would ultimately hope in God through Jesus Christ. It's the way in which that would happen. And that's explained in the passage Jamie read earlier from Ephesians 2. Let me read it again because it makes it clear Paul writing to Gentiles, you can see the graphic language by which he describes how they were no people, and now because we're all joined into one man, Jesus Christ, reconciled through the blood of his cross, we're now one people. I'll read it again. It's so helpful, it's so profound, but it makes the point. Ephesians 2.11 Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. The Jews looked with askance. They looked down on. They looked with prejudice on the Gentiles. They're uncircumcised. They're unwashed. They're not privileged like we are. Paul's alluding to that. A circumcision made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's the same point I was making Earlier, that when the Gentile readers and the churches to which Peter is writing, when they're reading the Old Testament, they're wondering, what's our connection to these highly privileged people, Israel? But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Who would think that the way God brought desperate peoples together, peoples that hated each other, had, that had nothing in common, the way he brings them together, the way he brings down the walls of prejudice and bigotry, the way he does it is the death of his son on the cross. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The cross is the end of the hostility between peoples that would otherwise find reasons in the way they look, 
where they were born, the nature of their country, etc., to find reasons to hate each other, that hostility comes down in view of Jesus' death on the cross. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, peace to those who were near. Through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. This is why there's only one people of God on the earth. It's always been God's people, Israel. That's the commonwealth. That's the one house. Paul talked about an olive tree in Romans that the Gentiles have been grafted in. Now the Gentiles are part of that building. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone of that foundation. Let me move on to the next two verses. Uh, You see in the book of Acts that there's an underlying prejudice, even in those who are following Jesus, they don't quite get that God is coming to save the Gentiles. Peter has an experience with a Gentile named Cornelius. He gets converted. The Holy Spirit is poured out, as was promised by the prophets. The Holy Spirit is poured out on the Gentiles. And here's how the Jewish believers reflected on that, Acts 11:18. When they heard these things, they fell silent, like dumbfounded. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. See the element of surprise? Wow. God's even saving Gentiles. When, when uh, Paul preached in Pisidian Antioch, uh, and the, Jewish, uh, the Jews there basically rejected his message, here's how he framed his need to continue preaching, namely to the Gentiles, borrowing from Isaiah 49.6. And so the Lord commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So, what do we do with these wonderful phrases, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation? I want you to think about it this way. If you were Joe or Julie Israelite, living in biblical times, and you had a passport... Obviously, the country of passport that issued your passport was Israel. But on that passport, in addition to the place you may have visited, there were some very special demarcations. It would not only say that you were a citizen of this land, Israel, but that you were a holy nation, a royal priesthood, and a chosen race. Those would be stamped on your passport. Chosen race comes from Deuteronomy chapter 10. God telling his people, I chose you. You didn't choose me. There's no reason in you I chose you to be my people. It's all on my sovereign, loving choice. And then in Exodus 19, we see the people of God called a holy nation, set apart, a royal priesthood. All of those things will be stamped on your passport. Peter is saying, if you're in the church of Jesus Christ, cross out Israel, put church on it. Those same things apply to you. Let's think about those things for a second. Chosen race, holy nation, royal priesthood. These are all things God declares you don't earn. These are all things assigned by God, not assumed by you. You don't assume a priesthood. You don't assume a race. You don't assume a nationality. These are all a corporate identity, not an individual identity. They're all a fixed status, not subject to change. And these things being a a, a corporate identity bind us to each other because they're non-existent without other people. You don't have a nation without other people. You don't have a priesthood without other priests. You don't have a chosen race without other people in the race. It shows how we belong 
to each other. It shows how incredibly privileged the church is to be, particularly Gentiles, to be included in the people of God. That's the bulk of the sermon. I have two more points. They're relatively brief. The next point is we're teasing out what is the nature of this love God has for you. That's the only thing on which to base your identity, your personhood, your significance. The second point is it's a possessive love. In studying this this week, I decided this was so breathtaking, so marvelous, it deserves its own sermon. So next week, expect an entire sermon on what it means to belong to the Lord, to be his precious possession. For this morning, though, let me give you two scriptures from the Old Testament from which Peter is borrowing on the basis of which he says to Gentile converts, you're a people for my own possession. Deuteronomy 26, here's what the Lord says. This, Jamie read this earlier in the, uh, in the service. This day, the Lord your God commands you to do these statutes and rules. You shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart and with all your soul. You have declared today that the Lord is your God and you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes and his commandments and his rules and will obey his voice. The Lord has declared today that you are a people for his treasured possession as he promised you. You just kind of want to stop and let that take your breath away. A people that are God's treasured possession. Okay, we got a whole sermon on that next week. And that he will set you in praise and in fame and in honor high above all the nations he has made. And that you shall be a people holy to the Lord your God as he promised. So much there to meditate and ponder and think about and relish as the basis of your identity. And then Isaiah 43, 4. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, don't withhold. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who was called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So much to say about that. But what if you woke up every day basking your heart in God's love for you, reminding yourself, I was formed, I was made, I was created for God's glory, as his own possession, promised to become, through Jesus Christ, a son or a daughter of God. I have another verse here from Titus chapter 2. I'll reference that in my sermon next week. Last point, fairly short. That is, we're looking at, at the love of God. What sort of love is, is it? It is, thirdly, a love worthy of proclaiming. Peter writes that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Again, likely referencing Isaiah 43, verse 20. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Why were you converted? Why did he cause you to be born again? Why did the sovereign spirit of God give you a heart that was no longer a heart of unbelief, but a heart of belief? Why did you come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? To make you a worshiper. To declare his praises. The end goal of evangelism 
is worship. <laughs> the end goal of your conversion is worship. And when you're converted, you tell others. This word here, proclaim, is the word from which we get evangelism in the New Testament. So God saves you to make you a worshiper who is privileged to tell others about the God who saved you. We now have really terribly significant things to talk to other people about. Like what God is like. What God does for helpless human beings. Or as Peter says here, the excellencies of him. It's the Greek from which we get virtue. But most of the commentators think it's really the mighty deeds of God. What are the mighty deeds of God? Well, it's not least his sacrifice for his enemies through his son on the cross. So now we engage those who do not know the Lord with questions. What do you think God is like? What would your life be like if you knew God? How do you know what God is like? And here you see the two-sided objective and subjective coin to declaring God's excellencies. On the one hand, we want to direct people to the word of God. What is God like? He tells us in his word. The word of God is the sword of the spirit. The goal in befriending other people to introduce Jesus to them is to ultimately get the word of God in their hands so they can stab themselves to life and salvation with it. The objective side is, in answer to the question, what is God like? What does God create me to be? What is life like? Where am I going? Where did I come from? That is objectively written in the word of God. The subjective side is, he called me out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now you have something personal to tell people about what God has done for you and the difference God has made in your life. We ought to be prepared, as people might ask us, to say, my life is different. It used to be this way. You don't need to use the word darkness, but it used to be characterized like this, when I didn't know Christ. Now I know Christ. Here's what's different about the way I spend my money, the way I treat others, the way I parent, the way I think about myself, the way I do life. This is the enormous privilege for which God, among other things, has saved us. To proclaim, to announce the excellencies, the mighty deeds of God, because we ourselves are one of those mighty deeds. We ourselves have been saved by his grace. Let us speak freely then and constantly of this marvelous, unfailing grace and love that is in Jesus. Let me pray for us. Lord, the, Paul tells us that the love of God is unsearchable and we've just scratched the surface this morning. But we are truly are desperate for that love to flood our hearts and to give us an identity. And as we've seen, it is a merciful love. Oh, the mercy of God. Not giving us what we deserved. Giving Christ what we deserved. Setting us free from condemnation. Forgiving us, reconciling us. Giving us a status of sons and daughters, those who now live in the light, those who are the people of God, those who have received mercy. We have an identity that can never change because you've declared it so. Thank you. Cause our hearts, our minds, our souls, our lives to be inflamed with the love of God and to return to you then in word and deed. All praise, glory, and honor. In Jesus' name, amen.